VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A malibu.com code SUMMER. Yo, technology, what is it all about? I don't know of any other industry, airline, pharmaceutical, where we allow for real-time experimentation on human populations, which essentially is what's happening with facial recognition. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley. Yes, it's me again. As promised, we wanted to bring you another conversation that was really right in the mix of everything that's been going on these last couple weeks and and one of the big issues um, that has emerged amidst all this, the chaos and the protests and everything else is facial recognition technology. Questions about how it's being developed, how it's being used, especially by the government, by the police, etc., border patrols, and uh, this sudden effort that has just bubbled up to regulate it. So you may have seen last week, IBM announced it was shutting down its facial recognition business. Amazon said it was suspending the sale of technology to police forces for a year, all of which is the, the idea is, you know, this is very potentially very powerful. We need to have a firm regulatory framework in place to make sure it is not used for ill. And in the meantime, the Congress has proposed some new, pretty flimsy rules to be included in these proposals to reform policing that will also put some some limitations on facial recognition and how it is used. So all of a sudden, this debate that's been simmering in the background has been brought to the front burner. And I thought, who better to bring on to talk about it than Rashida Richardson? Rashida is the Director of Policy Research at AI Now in New York, an organization that investigates and tries to help guide how AI is being developed, deployed, regulated out in the wild. You may recall that we had on Meredith Whitaker not too long ago. She is AI Now's co-founder. Anyhow, Rashida is right at the forefront of studying and bringing attention to the very many tricky issues involved with facial recognition in particular, especially when it comes to, you know, the biases, the data that is being used to train these algorithms and the biases inherent in that and what that means when it is then rolled out. And it's important because whether it's facial recognition or other types of AI, this stuff is just seeping into our lives in all kinds of obvious and less obvious ways. 
and in particular facial recognition, we're talking about the criminal justice system and how it works and who it affects, etc. Both here and in America and abroad, including uh, in Britain. So, it's an important conversation, especially to be having now. And it'll be interesting to see how this plays out, because basically all the big tech companies are working very hard on facial recognition. And it's going to be part of our lives in one way or another, in ways we expect and don't expect it already is. And really just stopping to think about how this is being developed and what it all means is worth doing, I think. So with that, I will give you Rashida Richardson, head of policy at AI Now. Enjoy. I wanted to to talk about facial recognition because... You will have seen, obviously, IBM said, okay, we're going to do this anymore. Amazon said, okay, we're going to ban this for a week. And there's all of these issues. But I'll start as a cynical journalist saying IBM was the first out of the gate. And they're like, no, you know what? This is just a problematic technology. We're not going to do this. We're not going to work with law enforcement to do this, etc." Until they made that announcement, I had never even heard of IBM as a player in facial recognition technology. So I was just wondering, I mean, are you taking that at face value or is it more like a little bit of nifty PR, but it doesn't really move the needle? With all of the tech company statements, I'm not going to say it's a bad thing because it's better than doing nothing, but it is definitely, in my opinion, a promotional or PR move for a few reasons. One, with IBM, they do have a robust research unit. They were selling these products but they weren't like the number one company in the market. And I'm pretty sure that it wasn't the most profitable technology that they were selling. So it's very easy to cut a technology that wasn't your main market driver. But then two, that's not the only racially biased technology that they produce. So they also sell, they're an active seller of predictive policing technologies, which I've done research on in plenty of other people to show that those technologies also perpetuate and amplify a lot of racial bias and racially biased practices within policing. And who knows? Predictive policing. Yeah, predictive policing uses police data and some technologies also use external data to predict where a crime may occur in a given window of time and who or who may be a victim or a perpetrator of a crime. That's okay. So, and the concern there is that since most systems heavily rely on police data, which is embedded with flaws, embedded with racial bias, it's more likely to perpetuate practices that, uh, the practices of police departments than necessarily predicting crime. And predictive policing, so they use those programs to say, okay, our patrols should be in X part of the city or whatever. Yeah, so the two main reasons police departments use them is one, resource allocation. So for smaller or low resource departments, it's like, how do we figure out where officers sh- should patrol when we have a small force? And then the other, which is kind of ironic, is some choose it to help neutralize bias within their own decision making. So it's a sort of adopting this automation bias logic of if we're just using data then that's going to be more strategic than intuition and other judgments that police departments use. Or, But the issue is there's still tons of discretion <laughs> along the way. Often officers aren't trained when using it. So there's been findings by inspector generals in Chicago and L.A. that have found that the use of the technologies were more likely to perpetuate racial bias, but also lead to unconstitutional stops. Because if you're being given a list, 
of people who are suspect for some reason, but no context and not told exactly what to do or even given different sort of leads on what to do, then it's more likely mm. to serve as pretext for a stop, which is so These programs actually will spit out names. Yeah. So if it's a person-based system, yes, it's list. It's right. usually a list of people. And some of them don't even clarify whether the person's a potential victim or perpetrator because it's looking for both. And often it's targeting a specific crime. So it's usually gun-related crimes is a big one. And the likelihood of being a victim or a perpetrator of a gun-related crime is more like if you've been in proximity to someone else. So there's a lot of flaws with their systems, but IBM produces that as well, but didn't say they were going to stop that research, stop selling those to law enforcement. And we don't know, and I'm not suggesting companies should say what's in their R&D pipeline, but I'm sure there's tons of more problematic technologies in development. And then we don't also have to talk about the tech diversity problem of like, I'm sure they're not looking at their hiring practices, their yeah. employees generally. So it's really hard to say this is a bold move when you have all of that context around their practices. So if we just look at, step back and look at facial recognition, and this is a basic question, but I think it's worth asking, you know, why is it problematic? What is problematic about facial recognition technology in, especially in, let's call it government hands, whether that's police, border patrol, et cetera? So I think the main problem is the technology doesn't work as well as most people think it does. And I don't know of any other industry, airline, pharmaceutical, where we allow for real-time experimentation on human populations, which essentially is what's happening with facial recognition. Most studies um, show that even the most leading producers of facial recognition don't perform at 100% accuracy. So the problem there is it's more likely to misidentify people. And the racial bias concern is that most of these systems are not trained with representative databases. So typically people of color, women and young people are not represented properly in the database. So it doesn't do as well as predicting those groups. And then when it's used by government, especially within criminal justice, border patrol, education, you're also dealing with databases that it's comparing against to do matching or identification that also have their own racial dis within. So if you're dealing with a mugshot database that hasn't been cleaned, that has is overly represented with brown and black people, then it's probably going to be a higher likelihood that a technology that only works at like, let's say, 50% rate for a black woman is going to then misidentify someone as having an outstanding warrant or any other mm. sort of information that could lead to higher scrutiny or more police coercion. So there are facial recognition programs out there in the wild right now that are that bad in terms of like a 50% positive yeah. rate? So there's great research done um, by two amazing black researchers, <laughs> Joy Blumenweeny and Timni Jibru called Gender Shades. And there they showed that even though some of the top performing systems, IBM, Face++, Microsoft, Amazon would say like we're performing at a 98% accuracy rate, typically that number only applied to white men. And when they actually started to look at how it performed across different skin types and different demographics, they found performance rates as low as like 30% for black women. Whereas 
the, the marketing materials would say we're performing at 98%. So when you have these very large disparities across groups and, and in general, even working at its best, it's not 100%, then you it leads to a myriad of issues with just yeah. misidentification. But then when you add that it's being used in a context where it allows for more discretion by officers, whether it's police or Customs and Border Patrol, or can just lead to higher scrutiny from, let's say, a private security company at Target. Like, those are not good outcomes when you're just like, the technology failed, and typically people don't know enough to even challenge that type of outcome. Can you give a sense of how prevalent this is? Because that's another thing. I know that there's been this kind of debate raging about facial recognition technology for at least the last two, three years in a more meaningful way. But it's, a, it's still unclear as to how pervasive it is, how, how much of this is out there and how it's being used. Yeah, and that's part of the problem is no one really has a full headcount because you're dealing with both private and public use and there's lots of secrecy on both ends. So you have commercial uses. Some people are probably more aware with airlines because that's a more one that people have come into contact with, but at stadiums where there's sports or music concerts, they've used facial recognition. Big retail stores like Target and others have used it for fraud detection and other services. But then within government, unless you're able to find an open procurement contract or an agency is being completely transparent about use, you often don't know. One example I like to use is a few years ago when I was working at the ACLU, I remember Governor Cuomo was doing his big presentation on infrastructure in New York State. And of 150 slides, one mentioned, like it was a quick mention of, oh, and we're going to test facial recognition on the um, automated license plate readers. And like I caught that and then was like, this is kind of problematic because not only does the technology not work well, and that's when you're talking about a clear image with good lighting and in, con- in a controlled environment, but how is a technology that doesn't work that well in a controlled environment supposed to work well through a windshield at an angle with the car going maybe 50 miles per hour and being used to say whether or not someone has an outstanding warrant. So there's, and so that's just an example of there was a little bit of transparency, but also most people didn't catch that. But most of the time we don't actually know, or we only find out after the fact, after there's been a pilot study, after there's been some failure. And do you have a sense of how this develops? Because I was, I've been corresponding with a couple developers who have come up with these uh, blurring tools, you know, which they built specifically for protesters. And everything that's been happening now, you know, obviously all of this is on camera and people are just trying to kind of protect themselves or create tools so people can protect themselves against facial recognition technologies being used by the authorities. So you have that kind of, let's call it that more of a guerrilla effort. You have some laws starting to circulate through Congress, and you have the industry saying, which I've been saying for a while now, including Microsoft, oh, please regulate us. Please, 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 we want to be regulated because this is important. And again, not to be cynical, but whenever a company pleads for regulation, it feels like that's the big guys saying, okay, yeah, please regulate because this will kill a lot of our competition because we can comply with things that others can't. I don't think that's a cynical take. 
Uh, <laughs> or maybe I just share your cynicism. So there's a few things in your question. First, there's this patchwork of laws that are being implemented on the local and state level. And now Congress is finally trying to attempt at some regulation. Like the, the most immediate one is the Democrats' most recent police reform bill, which does have some language about banning facial recognition. But some of these laws that even have a moratorium or ban have these huge exemptions that still give tons of discretion to law enforcement or whatever the agency may be. So you have exemptions for imminent threat, which is a very vague and broad category, which can range from counterterrorism, which we all know is kind of a vague term that can include a lot of actions to using it to find a kidnapped kid. And I find often the latter category of these cases, these very small sort of good use cases are used to justify these very broad uh, sort of exemptions that allow for almost free range use <laughs> as long as there's some justification. And another piece in the Democrats bill was like, if you could get judicial authorization and you could get a judge to sign off if they were investigating a crime, which that's pretty low bar as well. And then you also have issues like in California where you had smaller jurisdictions issuing bans and moratoriums. So what police did is they just sent data to another jurisdiction that didn't have a ban to run analysis. So I definitely do think we need something on the federal level, but it also feels like some of these legislations, legislators are struggling with not wanting to just do a wholesale ban and waiting to see if the technology can be developed to a point that it can be used effectively and without creating disparities for some parts of our population. But then the approaches leave these like large areas where it doesn't seem very effective and chilling or curtailing the harms that we see. And then on the industry side, the push for regulation yet not wanting to self-regulate again seems very convenient because there are many actions companies can take. They don't have to create these technologies in the first place, but that's not the starting point. It's easier to just do as what you suggested of like waiting for government to do something, doing the check the sort of checkbox form of regulation that usually comes and then seeing some of the competition that doesn't have the resources to comply, fall apart, and then you can be a market leader. Or you get the kind of myopic focus where facial recognition is kind of the technology of interest. And it, and it is scary. It does pose a lot of legal and social concerns, but it's not the only technology these companies are producing. And I feel like, especially on the regulatory end, when we myopically focus on just one specific technology, it allows for tons of other systems that are problematic to remain in place or even become legally permissible because they are being ignored or seen as substantially different from mm. the sort of technology of interest. Yeah, well, it does feel, and I don't know if it's just the nature of the technology, but there's a, a visceral fear of this in a way that there isn't for a lot of other stuff, which, as you say, is perhaps more subtle or less visible. I was talking to somebody in the way they termed it is like, the fear is that if you lose your face, it's out there, like, you know, the, the authorities have it forever or whatever it may be. I mean, do you think that's part of why this is so kind of fraught is just you know, what the, what the technology actually does? <laughs> yeah, like biometric 
indicators, identifiers are very unique to us. So once the government has it, it's not like you can change your face. Well, you can plastic surgery, but it's, yeah, but can. even for how the technologies work, they can probably identify you. And I think differently from whether we're talking about analog practices or even other technologies like predictive policing, they aren't targeting specific groups and communities like most other police and immigration practices typically do. I guess the cynical take is it can affect everyone, which the scope of reach is kind of the concern in that no one's immune from it, even though we know that different parts of our population and society carry the burden of these technologies not working differently. So there, there is a legitimate concern about the risk of abuse and misuse once either companies or the government have this information. But I don't think it's the most exceptional technology in that I think it's part of a suite of evolving AI, machine learning, deep learning, all of that kind of technology, which all stem from very similar flawed logics and concerns. So I think it is right to target this technology. It does pose a lot of legal complications and risk, but I don't think we should limit it. And I think it's exposing what has been a problem with the law for decades is that the law has always, or technology innovation has always outpaced the law. So we're always just trying to catch up. And I think now we've reached this point where the technologies are evolving so quickly that there's this recognition that this approach of like letting the Supreme Court decide 10 years from now is not the right approach to figuring out what the legal standards should be for technology. So to be real doom mongery, if we like step back and as you say, there's a whole bunch of technologies that are problematic. Is there one in that suite or a couple where, where we should be thinking more about or that people don't know about that you think we should be paying more attention to or that are potentially even more damaging? Oh, all of them. But okay, there's a few. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll target two others okay. so I don't just in time listing off everything. One which has received some media coverage is the use of risk assessments, specifically in sentencing or bail determinations in the criminal justice system. There was a whole ProPublica North Point which created this one risk assessment tool called Compass where they were refuting that their system was racially biased or at least produced racially disproportionate outcomes. And that's concerning because, one, actuarial risk assessments have been around for a long time. It's just they're becoming more in vogue because they can be automated and scaled at a different Mm. level than people. So risk assessment. Oh, so what the risk assessment is, is it's essentially creating a number of factors and using, again, uh, mostly criminal justice data to assess the risk of a person. So if it's for a bail determination, it's whether or not they're a flight risk and whether or not they should go to jail or be free um, before their trial for sentencing. It can help a judge with assessing how to sentence someone. And so he just puts in their whatever, puts in their name or their information, and then it spits. It can effectively spit out a number. Your bail is 50 or your bail is 5 million. Color, like it can vary by the type of vendor and where it's used, but it's some type of metric to help aid decision making. And the logic behind why these systems are becoming so pervasive is because there's recognition that like we know judges can be biased. There's evidence that judges can be more punitive because their sports team lost or they're hungry and it's about to be a lunch break. Or even like more social theory based ones of standpoint theory of 
if you're a white cisgender upper middle class male, you're more likely not to understand the myriad of social issues (laughs) that lead to crime, or even to be more skeptical of um, someone standing before you. So the problem, though, is these systems aren't or these technologies aren't neutral, often they're implemented in really problematic ways. So they can often exacerbate a lot of the racial disparities within the criminal justice system. And they're also used throughout. So it's from bail all the way to parole. Almost every decision point can use one of these systems. And we don't even know how pervasive they are used or how they're interdependent on one another. So that's a real problem because it kind of can expedite how certain groups of our society move through the criminal justice system and sort of expand the new Jim Crow, as we um, now call it. The other, which I spoke about a little before, is predictive policing. And that's because it's based on this logic that you can predict crime or who may be a criminal, but there's not as much scrutiny of what is the data or the logic being used to make those predictions. And some systems use data that is known to be problematic, like arrest data, because it doesn't mean someone was actually convicted of a crime. But then I've also written a paper, short title, Dirty Data, Bad Predictions, where I looked at jurisdictions with DOJ consent decrees or pre-existing documented histories of racially biased and unlawful police conduct. And what we also found is like it's more likely to reproduce those same problematic practices. And often some companies will be like, well, we're using more neutral data, like call for service or 311 data. But I think a lot of the internet memes like the (laughs) Karens and the Barbecue Becky's, and now I'm forgetting the rest of the names. Amy Cooper. Yeah, Amy Cooper. Like, this demonstrates that that data is not neutral. Just because someone called the police and said a crime was occurring doesn't mean there was actually a crime and maybe a complete mischaracterization of what happened, and that becomes a data point that's then taken to be a legitimate fact. I think that technology is not only problematic because it reproduces the problems we already know exist in policing, but I think it can amplify a lot of our social and cultural issues, too, of if we're not being critical of how our own practices become embedded in the system, then it's just going to automate this down the line. And the last point is that these systems aren't limited to criminal justice. They're being exported into schools, exported into healthcare. And the concern there is like, that's just expanding the scope. Now I sound like the panopticon <laughs> person, but it, it expands the scope and the reach of the criminal yeah. justice system beyond just those actors that we traditionally see as criminal justice actors or institutions. Is the primary problem then the data? The data that is being used to train this stuff, presumably being drawn from past data, which in itself is the product of all of these inbuilt societal issues that we all know about. So if that's the kind of the pool from which you are drawing, the outcomes will be skewed. Yeah, that's one part of the problem. And I think even before that, there's the problem of what is the problem? You're allowing technologists who have no domain expertise of criminal justice, education, healthcare, whatever the sector may be, to define what they think the problem in that sector or what the problem in society is. And then you're creating technology to solve that problem when the reality is there's other ways to use technology (laughs) to solve problems we know of. So an example I like to give is we don't even know how many police departments domestically here in the U.S. or globally are using predictive policing because it's so pervasive and secret, but there's only been one pilot study of 
using predictive analytics to identify officers that are more likely to have an adverse interaction with a resident. And here we know police misconduct is an issue. There's tons of data to help target that problem, but there's no interest in police departments buying technology to solve the issues that they know lie within, or even trying to use technology to identify and target sort of bureaucratic issues. It's always, we're targeting civilians, we're targeting the public based on preconceived notions of what we think the problem is. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Obviously, the last couple of weeks, the last few months for the U.S. have been particularly horrendous in the last two weeks in particular with the killing of George Floyd and the protests and everything and of the state response in many places to that. But do you think this is kind of a moment that will lead to some kind of change in the way this technology is either developed and or deployed and or regulated? Because it does feel like all of a sudden you have people making tools for protesters to protect themselves. All of a sudden you have Amazon saying, we're going to do a one-year ban while you guys figure out the regulation, which again, we can take at face value or not, whatever. But there does seem to be all of a sudden there's a flurry of activity, which happens sometimes when events happen. It's obviously the follow-through that, you know, when people stop looking. Yeah, it's tough. I go back and forth between this every day because in, in a certain way, it's like the evidence has been there for centuries, <laughs> um, but we're now only catching up. And so it, it's it's hard for me not to be cynical, but I, I'm both hopeful as long as the pressure continues and the right voices are being amplified because what I think part of my concern is and why I'm like even hesitant to be optimistic about this moment is you don't have everyone on the same page and not everyone is really or, or is really on the same page about what the problems are and what the right solutions are. So my fear is that some of the calls for defunding police or more dramatic pushes could just lead to more of a surveillance state because if you're not creating infrastructure for an alternative, if you don't have politicians who are already in office and hostile to any form of criminal justice reform on the same page, then you're more likely to have any type of real reform subverted and then replaced with like, hey, we don't need as many cops on the street and we're going to cut that budget, but then we're just going to put CCTV cameras everywhere with facial recognition to help solve that problem. 
And that's not the right solution either. So I want reform to keep um, the reform to like stay as the top button issue. But I also think we need to be cautious of ulterior motives or sort of perverse interests that are also part of these conversations. So in an ideal world, all of a sudden you are made the czar of facial recognition technology. It doesn't feel like this type of thing can be banned. You can't banish this technology from Earth, or maybe you can. What would you do? So this is often like the genie's out already outside of the bottle sort of point. I, I think that we need to have more imagination, both as a society and especially within policy spaces, because while it may be practically difficult to stop a technology that is already pervasively used, it's not impossible. It just takes will and strategy to implement that. So if I was czar, I would stop the use of it and I would prohibit any use of any type of technology that is essentially experimental on human populations from being used and creating better standards up front before there is used and more buy-in before their government money is spent to use it. Because I think if there was more robust conversation with communities where facial recognition is being used by government, most people would say that's not the best use of our tax dollars. Like you could spend money in a lot of other places to target whatever the concern is um, that facial recognition is supposed to solve and probably for cheaper. (laughs) So I do think we should stop using it. I I don't think companies need to stop researching it. Like you can research and keep that in a vacuum and try to figure out some type of productive use that doesn't burden certain parts of society for the sake of innovation. But I don't think the idea of just because it's in use, it's impossible to stop should be the continuing logic. Is there anything else from your perspective that we haven't covered, either on facial recognition technology or more broadly, just the use of the kind of the seeping of AI into law enforcement and government and, you know, kind of the authorities, because it does feel, as you say about predictive policing and other things, it is, it does feel like it's just kind of happening kind of behind the scenes, or not behind the scenes, but unbeknownst to most people. The problem is, I think we still have a lot of like automation bias or mythology around technology that leads to this. It's magic. Yeah. It's magic. Like, oh, it's numbers. So it's going to be better than the human. So I think it's like that type of mindset leads to a lot of sort of unscrutinized use and acquisition of these technologies. But I think also governments are dealing with a challenge. You're dealing with decades of austerity measures and this over-reliance on data and metrics that are almost forcing governments into what seems like a zero-sum game of like, you either pick the technology or you lose your job and a thousand other jobs get cut. And I think that's just the wrong approach to governance in general. And so without being like we, we have to completely overhaul government, I think we need to scrutinize a lot of the policies and decisions that led to this moment. It's not just that like the tech appeared and then people were like, this is the solution. And then try to figure out what is the systemic remedy that gets us back to 1968. <laughs> not that that's where I want to go back. Not, this isn't like a make America great again thing, but it's more like what would have happened if we didn't see the cuts of the Carter Reagan and every administration after that in government or this push for metrics to make decisions and 
actually start to try to envision what what would make us a healthier society. What is the best function for government in that? And what is the role of technology as a tool in helping advance that? But I feel like often the conversation is we don't even want to talk about the goals or what the right approach is. It's just like, let's import this technology and see what happens later. Clearly, that doesn't work. And it's also not cost effective because there's been tons of lawsuits once the technology fails. So that's a long answer to say, I think we just need to re-envision how government is working and see what is the role of technology in there rather than the reverse. Well, that's what's interesting is that you talk to a lot of people in this world and they'll say, well, look what China's doing. Someone's going to do it. So you either let, have us do it, the responsible stewards of this technology, or it's going to be imported or it's going to be made by a bad actor. But like to the point around the genie is out of the bottle. You got to be realistic about it. That means let us do it, basically. Yeah, rather than China may be doing it and it's a completely different government structure, but why don't we try to show an alternative? Like, I think rather than this race to the bottom that governments are often on, there needs to be some type of effort to be like, you can do it differently. You can do, you can use technology and regulate it in a rights preserving way. But instead of that, like doing the hard work, which includes a lot of reform and almost restructuring of government, it's easier to just say, we don't know what to do. We'll figure out regulation later or we'll leave it to the courts, which is often the case here in the U.S. It doesn't sound like you're ever going to be bored. No. I And, and I think, so I can give one idea so I'm not just talking abstractly. Mm. I think what needs to happen in public policy and regulation is we need a new incentive structure. Because the reality is like companies, they're driven by profit and they have to give money to their shareholders. It's not as if their goal is like we're making technology for the public interest and that's the end goal. So knowing that we're not going to overhaul capitalism today, how can we create some type of market tax and even the carrot and stick approach in an incentive structure to push companies to create technology that doesn't harm half of our population but also can actually help fit the needs of society or even government. Small, easy. (laughs) I'm I'm working (laughs) on it. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Rashida for taking the time. We almost missed this. Actually, I almost missed it because I thought we were talking at 10 a.m. West Coast and it was 10 a.m. East Coast, but I got a ping um, while I was being attacked by my children. Anyhow, we made it happen. I hope you guys enjoyed it. That is it for me this week. We are writing about um, facial recognition technology this week. So if you want to read more, I'm talking to a bunch of people. So that piece will be in this weekend's paper in the times.co.uk. And please have a subscribe. It helps keep me employed. And if you like the podcast, of course, give a rating, give a review. That is it. Stay safe, stay sane. And we will talk to you next week. Bye-bye. listening to me daisy apple's iphone disassembly robot is dismantling an iphone into lots of recyclable parts that's how apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods thanks daisy there's more to iphone 